Well, I know it's already happened to you this morning. The question is, how many times has it happened to you? How many times have you been indeeded as you came into the worship this morning? It's an, it's an old, it's an ancient ritual. Um, someone greets you on Resurrection Sunday on Easter. They say, he is risen, and you say? He is risen indeed. There you go. Yes, indeedy. Um, he is risen. It, the church legend traces this all the way back to Mary Magdalene. Uh, it says that. She had an audience, she became a herald of the gospel, and she had an audience with the emperor Tiberius, and before him she made this statement that he is risen indeed, rooted, anchored in the great confessions of the scriptures, and it's, it's followed us all the way to our day. The problem is, what do you do if you aren't so sure that he's risen? People say, he is risen, and you say, maybe? It's just... We recognize this morning that it can be awkward if you're a person who struggles with this almost unbelievable idea. And you need to know that when Jesus first rose from the dead, no one believed it. Okay? No one. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Everyone in the gospel accounts in the New Testament, upon first hearing the news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, was sorely lacking in the indeed department. Uh, nobody bought into it. Pastor David Luce says, um, if doubt describes you, it turns out you're in good company. As there is a significant feature of each of the gospel stories about the first Easter morning that often gets left out of church services and sermons. Namely, when the heavenly messengers first announced the news of Jesus' resurrection, no one said, praise God, or hallelujah, let alone, I knew it, just like he said. <laughs> so that's right, not a single one of Jesus' disciples at first believed the report of his resurrection. So this morning, that's what we want to do a little bit, is just think about what do you do with your doubts? I mean, if... If your indeed is less than certain, what, what do you do with that? And so I'd like to pray for us as we ask that and deal with that really, really important question. What do I do with my doubts? Let's, let's pray together. Father, faith is a gift, comes to us from you. And so I pray that you'd lavish it on us all this morning. Lord knows we need it. Doubt stalks us all. It finds its way in, crevices into our minds and hearts throughout the days and some of us are more vulnerable than others, but we all, we all get attacked this way. And so I pray this morning just for the gift of faith to come in increased measure to us all around this wondrous, hope-giving event, the resurrection of Jesus. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, so, but to make sense out of Easter uh, this morning, I want to back up just a little bit um, and think about the week prior. This, this had to be like a roller coaster of a week for Jesus' disciples. I mean, it started off grandly that Sunday before Jesus enters the city. We call it Palm Sunday. He enters Jerusalem on that donkey. There are crowds gathered by the thousands, maybe even the ten thousands, who catch a glimpse of Jesus, and they're shouting, Hosanna, throwing down palm branches, throwing their coats down before him. It was an entry that was fit for a king. Not a bad start to the week if you're a disciple of Jesus. 
But then things start to get a little testy after that. Jesus comes in the next day. He curses that fig tree. He, he runs all the money changers out of the temple. Um, the religious leaders start to engage him in heated debate. But as always, Jesus gets the upper hand. And Thursday evening, things take a turn. They meet in that upper room where they have the Last Supper. They head out to that Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And Judas shows up with an entourage of religious leaders and soldiers. They arrest Jesus. All the disciples scatter, fleeing for their lives. Jesus pinballs from interrogation to interrogation. It lasts the whole night until that Friday morning he stands before Pilate in a crowded courtyard. And this crowd has changed their tune. Now they don't shout Hosanna, they shout crucify him. Pilate washes his hands of the matter, grudgingly complies, and at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, they nail Jesus to the cross, and by 3 o'clock that afternoon, it's over. Jesus is dead. And his disciples are thinking, this is not the way things are supposed to be. And so at this point, we want to look back to Luke's gospel. We'll pick it up in chapter, uh, right before chapter 24, chapter 23, the last couple of verses. They read like this. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to to the commandment on that Saturday after Good Friday, they rested, keeping the Sabbath. Okay. Now this band of ladies, that's the focus here, have been faithfully following Jesus, it says from Galilee. They may have been following Jesus for years. This week, they were probably the most faithful amongst Jesus' disciples. Um, they were amongst the only ones who were there at the cross. Matthew tells, he says, at the cross, there were many women there at the cross looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And now these ladies, this band of faithful followers of Jesus, have followed Jesus' body, observed where Joseph buried him, so that they could return after the Sabbath. They're faithful Jews. They're keeping the Sabbath even now. They want to come back and anoint his body properly. Clearly, the ladies expected to come back to the tomb and find a body. Okay? That's why they were going there. That's not exactly what happened. Start in chapter 24 now. On the first day of the week, at early dawn... These ladies went back to that tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, um, they were perplexed about this. So their response, they were befuddled. They were perplexed. They were bewildered. bewildered. This is the most um, positive response to the resurrection of Jesus in the accounts, right? bewilderment. Um, 
In one account, these women flee the tomb in terror and silence. Here in Luke, when the women do muster the courage to tell what they've seen, the men dismiss their testimony as a crazy story. Down in verse 10 of Luke 24, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things that the tomb was empty to the apostles. But these words seemed to the the disciples as an idle tale and they did not believe them. And it wasn't just the women that the disciples dismissed and disbelieved. In Mark, he tells us that after these things, Jesus appeared in another form, the resurrected Jesus appeared in another form to two disciples as they were walking the country. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And most famously, Thomas earns his nickname when he says, Thomas, one of the 12, called the um, the twin, rather, was not with them. When Jesus came, so the others told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So in all of the gospel accounts, um, the natural first response of people to the news of the resurrection is doubt and fear and bewilderment. You know, who, who could blame them, honestly? Here's, here's a fascinating story to help you think about it. It's told by John Ortberg. He says, a friend of mine used to work as a denominational official in Minnesota. And one of his jobs was to travel to little rural communities where they didn't have churches to do funerals. He would go out with an undertaker. They would drive together in the undertaker's hearse. One time, he said they were on their way back from a funeral. My friend John was feeling quite tired. He decided he would take a nap. Since they were in a hearse, he thought, well, I'll just lie down in the back of the hearse. Sounds, Orberg says, it sounds like a creepy thing to do, but this is a true story. The guy who was driving the hearse pulled into a service station because he was running low on gas. The service station attendant was filling up the tank and he was kind of freaked out because there was a body stretched out in the back. And while he was filling the tank, John woke up, (laughs) opened his eyes, knocked on the window, and waved at the attendant. John said he never saw anybody run so fast in his whole life. I mean, isn't doubt reasonable (laughs) but then something happens God administers a remedy to doubt and disbelief and so these women they're emboldened after this remedy comes to them and they race to tell the disciples down in verse 9 of chapter 24 we're looking at says returning from the tomb they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest Separately, Mary Magdalene does the same thing in John 20. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told the things that he'd said to her. There are two mopey disciples on the road to Emmaus. They run back. They share the news with the others. In Luke 24, a little farther down, it says, They rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
And then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And finally, after being badgered with this news left and right, all of the disciples, they believe at last. Luke tells us they worshipped him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. So all of this, this kind of transformation from doubt to faith really kind of begs the question, so what's the remedy? What, what happened to help these people believe the news? Um, to believe in a life-shaping, kind of doubt-slaying way that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead on the third day. And, but before we look at the remedy, let me talk just a little bit about why it matters. Why, why this remedy, why you want to take this remedy, why you want to embrace it and pursue it. Um, there's a pastor, his name is Steve Matthewson. He's written a little book. It's really helpful. It's called Risen, 50 Reasons Why the Resurrection Changes Everything. Now, this morning, I'm not going to trot out all 50 reasons this morning. We'll just do three of them. But over the next, um, the next 50 days that lead up to the season of Pentecost, this would be a great read for you. You can read one reason a day for the next 50. It's, a, it's an awesome little book. But this morning, I want to look at three big picture reasons why you should take the remedy that helps you deal with your doubts concerning the resurrection. And they come to us from the Apostle Paul in his chapter that's devoted to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They have to do with our future and our present and our past. So, first, he talks about how the resurrection affects our future. In verse 17 of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. See, Paul, Paul is putting the importance of the resurrection of Jesus here rather negatively. If Christ hasn't been raised, then there's no resurrection hope for anybody. He puts it a little more positively, just a verse or two later. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Ergo, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then so shall we be raised from the dead. Okay? Christ is what Paul calls the first fruits of those who have died, that is, his resurrection, it's, it's like a prototype. It's like a down payment on our resurrection. Because of the surety of his resurrection, we have a hope that's greater than the grave. So there's a, there's a lengthy interview with a TV personality, Larry King, uh, that was done in the New York Times a while back. He was, at the time, in 2015, he was 81 years old. And... He was fixated on dying. But all the while, he was trying desperately to avoid it. This is an excerpt from that article. It says, King takes four human growth hormone pills every day, claims he feels great, but in case death does come to him, King has arranged to have his body frozen 
and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him. The so-called cryonics approach. King told the interviewer later that the people behind cryonics are all nuts. But at least he knows he will be frozen. If he's frozen, he will die with a shred of hope. Other people have no hope, Larry King said. See, but Paul says Jesus' resurrection changes all that. He's the first fruits, right? He's the prototype of a whole boatload of resurrections that are to follow. See, we do have hope. The Apostle Paul says it. We do have hope. Romans 6. If we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Certainly. The Apostle Peter says, we do have hope. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus himself says, we have hope. Jesus says in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Because Christ has risen, we have a future hope that's sure, a hope greater than death itself. See, the resurrection gives us hope for the future. It also affects our present. Paul says, back in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the danger that he faced as an apostle of Jesus, right? Verse 30, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. That is, I risk my life every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Paul's point here is that why would I suffer so if it's a lie? I would just be a hedonist if it weren't for the resurrection, he says. If it ain't true, then let's just party on, because this is all there is. But there's, there's kind of a logical corollary that goes with it. If this is true, then it's worthy of the greatest of sacrifices. And Paul writes that other places in Romans 8 he says I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us not even worth comparing he writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and Paul is not writing theory here He had experienced some suffering. He catalogs it in 1 Corinthians 11. Let me just read to you Paul's catalog of the suffering that he faced as he followed Christ. Countless beatings, he says. 
often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You can add to that catalog of sufferings this thing he called a thorn in his flesh that was a chronic source of suffering for Paul. If, you're a, if you are a chronic sufferer of pain, Paul knows what you're going through when he writes these words. Paul knew suffering. And some of you do too. And there are days for you when it just seems like it's not worth it and you'd rather take an easier way out. Paul is saying here, as, a, as someone who's suffered greatly, there is a hope for you today that is greater than your suffering or your sorrow. He says the hope of the resurrection makes it worth it. So if you want something worth living for, if your pain is ceaseless and your sorrow unending, if you want a reason worthy of keeping on, keeping on, here it is, right? It's the hope of the resurrection. If you sense the emptiness of hedonism and pleasure-seeking and living for retirement, if you want a reason worthy of forsaking a life of sin, the resurrection of Jesus is worth it. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. Hope in that. Paul says, that's enough hope. That's hope that makes suffering now worth it. affects your future and your present and it affects your past this this hope in the resurrection he says in first corinthians 15 verse 17 if christ has not been raised then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins he, he puts our hope a little backwards there if christ has not been raised you are still in your sins you must bear your sins there is no forgiveness there's no freedom. There's, there's a, a recent study that was done that says the average person is holding on to 13 secrets. 13 secrets, five of which they've never told a living soul. It says it's not the secret itself that will haunt you. It's all the mental energy you spend thinking about it. The research shows that some people actually feel physically heavier when they're burdened with a secret that extra weight skews how they navigate their surroundings when participants were asked to judge the slope of a hill or the length of a distance those who were preoccupied with keeping secrets judged the hills steeper and the distances longer than they really were michael slepian who's a prophet at the columbia business school 
told The Atlantic, we found that when people were thinking about their secrets, they actually acted as if they were burdened by physical weight. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then there's no remedy for that. But if Christ did, in fact, die bearing our sins... As Peter put it, Peter says, Jesus committed no sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So if Christ did bear our sins on the tree, on the third day he rose, then what, as Pastor John Piper put it, the resurrection of Jesus validates the infinite value of the lifeblood of Jesus. If he is raised, then his sacrifice was sufficient, and you are not Still in your sins. And that's really, really good news. To hope and trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus is to free us from the burden of our sins. That's worth it. Christianity, with this beautiful hope in the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection has been called the greatest way to live and the only way to die. Do you believe that? This morning, do you believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died for your sins and that God then on the third day raised him from the dead as this great stamp of validation on the forgiveness of of sins, all who hope in Christ. Paul says it beautifully, and this is so simple. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You won't have to bear your sins anymore. To believe in Jesus and the good news of his gospel is to have the sure hope of life beyond the grave of a bodily resurrection. And this hope can be yours if you'll trust in Christ and believe his gospel that Christ died for your sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day. So now I hope you see why this remedy for doubt is so very, very important. Let's look at it. Now, there are several remedies that play out in the lives of these um, doubting disciples. As you read their stories... You'll see that they doubted, and then they believed, and several different things happened. One that is really, really helpful to them was they encountered the risen Jesus. Um, a really doubt-slaying kind of thing. Um, you know, for 40 days, Jesus hangs around after his resurrection. He's seen roughly a dozen times by as many as 500 people at once. Like an entire room like this full of people at once. Um, and his primary purpose, as best I can tell, for hanging around for 40 days after the resurrection was just to help people believe. That's why he stayed. But after 40 days, he ascends and goes back to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the scriptures tell us. So this kind of encounter with the risen Christ 
physically is not really an option for us. He's not here anymore in that sense. He's gone back to be with the Father. However, because he is risen and he still lives, he can show up dramatically and does in people's lives in in a more spiritual sense. Uh, Think of the Apostle Paul, who had an encounter with the risen Christ that changed him from persecutor to author of the vast majority or the lion's share of the New Testament. In a sense, everyone who converts to follow Christ has had some kind of encounter with the risen Christ by his spirit. But this this kind of encounter we read about in these 40 days, that was a unique thing. Now another remedy you'll see as you read these accounts, the one in Luke 24 with these women, um, is uh, they ran into angels who told them what went on. Also very helpful in dispelling doubt. Look at Luke 24, verse 4 to 7. This is what happens to those ladies. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. So again, pretty convincing remedy. Uh, Two angelic beings show up and tell you, hey, he's risen. He's not dead. Um, But the fascinating thing about this, it's not the angels that are the tipping point for the ladies. Look at those those verses with me. Um, The very next verse is really interesting. So the angels tell them that, and they remembered Jesus' words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. The key to the women's faith was not so much the angelic appearance, though I'm sure that added a little punch to it. Um, It was that the angels reminded them of Jesus' words. They remembered Jesus' words, and they believed Repeatedly, Jesus had predicted that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, and he was going to raise from the dead. Mark chapter 8. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Mark chapter 9. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Mark chapter 10, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So, Over and over and over again, Jesus had said, this is what is going to happen. And remembering these words, the words of Jesus, are our God-given foundation for faith in the resurrection. It's interesting how Jesus uh, strengthens the faith of the disciples that told the women they were crazy, basically. Go back to Luke 24 with me. And uh, if, you, if you want a great read this afternoon, a resurrection read, read Luke 24. It's absolutely delightful. We're, we're just kind of skipping around in it this morning. 
Um, but in Luke 24, Jesus shows up amongst his disciples, resurrected, and he shows them his hands and feet, and he says, you guys got anything to eat? These are all evidences that he's not some kind of apparition, that he really is risen bodily and is there before them. So Luke 24, verse 44, then Jesus says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember? He says, remember that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Clearly, the words of Jesus are intended to be the source and anchor of their faith and ours, even above angelic appearances, as cool as that would be. The remedy to our doubts over and over again in Scripture is the Scripture. Remember the teaching of Jesus. So, friends, take up and read that Bible. The the family heirloom proudly displayed on the coffee table. Crack that thing open. Read it. If you want hope and not doubt, that is the key that, that Jesus keeps pointing to, that Paul points to. The teaching of Jesus in the four Gospels is a great place to start. This is the prescribed remedy to doubt. Meditate on, consider, reflect, read, remember the words of Jesus. If you're struggling with doubt, let me me encourage you. Make the teachings of Jesus your primary reading. Before you read what everybody says about those words, read those words. Let those be your primary source of meditation and reflection. Let me, let me talk to those of you who follow Jesus first. Um, there is a battle being raged all about you for your faith. There's a, there was a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Screwtape Letters where uh, an older demon named Screwtape mentored a younger demon named Wormwood in how to trip up folk like you. And there's a blogger named... Um, What's the guy's name? I don't know. Kevin Halloran. He, he kind of expanded on this with a blog he entitled, Uncle Screwcape's Advanced Strategies Against Gospel Growth. This is what he says. Do whatever you can to keep him from the enemy's word. So this is a demon saying, keep those Christians away from the Bible. Discourage him that he still has trouble understanding certain parts and that he'll never be as smart as that brainy friend of his. Distract him with anything possible. Thoughts from the workplace. His friend. That smartphone of his. Yes, that phone is a splendid way to take his attention captive. Anything that will keep him from deep, soul-searching thought and reflection of the enemy is a win for us. Related to this is the powerful tool of doubt. One still at your disposal, but you must wield it more craftily. 
While it would be hard to entice him to doubt the inspiration of the book, you can subtly sneak in the thought that it doesn't impact his daily life. That causing him to doubt the book's practicality and thus causing him to doubt the book's practicality and importance. This nuanced approach won't cause him backward movement in his faith, but rather serve to stall his movement forward. There's a battle being waged for your faith. And to neglect the words of Jesus, the teaching of the scriptures, is to make yourself vulnerable to doubt and disbelief in a way that you otherwise would not be. Take up and read. A couple of years ago, Esquire magazine ran an article um, called 25 Skills Every Man Should Know. And it focuses on what Esquire calls the 25 skills that will set you apart as a man of action. And here are examples from their list of 25 essential manly skills. One, how to skin a moose. <laughs> Two, how to get a busy bartender's attention. Three, how to buy a woman clothing. Their, their first and only step is don't. Four, how to look good in a picture. Five, how to parallel park. Six, how to make pancakes from scratch. Seven, how to carve a turkey. Eight, how to kill a wounded animal. Nine, how to shine your shoes. And ten, how to console a crying woman. To that, I would say that the women at the tomb, men, would add one more. They would say, brothers, please remember the teachings of Jesus. Don't give in to doubt. Immerse yourselves in them. Let your thoughts be haunted and shaped by them. Your actions fueled by them. And ladies, though you may or may not feel compelled to know how to skin a moose, know that your sisters in the faith at the tomb would urge the exact same thing of you. Remember the teachings of Jesus. So those of you who follow Jesus, is that your rhythm? Is that your practice? Are you, are you daily, multiple times a day even, in this book, thinking of this book, meditating on this book? We're people of the book. It's, it's the foundation for our faith and as we're seeing today, our hope. That is where the power to overcome doubt lies. And so, I know that some of you have come here to pacify a friend or a family member. And you're to be commended for that, right? Um, maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're a doubter in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and, and I do want you to know, first of all, we're so very glad you're here. Uh, you're always welcome here. Some of the greatest people on the planet are here. We would love to get to know you. I would love for you to get to know them. And we would love to read the teachings of Jesus with you. It would be an honor for you to allow us to go get coffee together and just read the Gospel of John and talk about it. Believe me, we would love to do that. Because who knows? After a time, when we recite that liturgy, and the pastor says, Christ is risen. Someday, you might be surprised how you respond. The space between doubt and faith may be less than you think. 
Easter is coming, but for many of us, this is not the ultimate reality. There is too much pain and suffering in the world today. Death has the last word. It would therefore be foolish to say that the life and death of a first century 